This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. A very good afternoon to everyone. It's a joy to be with God's people, opening up God's Word. It's a privilege we enjoy, but we never take for granted. So let's take this time and ask God to help us to engage with His Word, and that His Spirit will help us to understand and respond rightly. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us today. Father, you know all of us, the week that we have gone through, times of joy, times of suffering, times of trouble. Our God, you know our emotions, even as we got up today, getting ready to come to church. And right now, Father, as we sit here and open up your word to engage with your word, we pray, God, that your Holy Spirit is present with us. That your Holy Spirit will guide us and transform us and engage us as we look into your word. So be with us, Father, we pray that we may understand and respond to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, we are all experts at reading signs. The very fact that you are here and you are not in a hospital right now is that you have read your traffic signs correctly. The stop signs, the green, the red, um, when to board, when to stop. You read signs and that's why you are here. You are experts at that. In fact, we learn to read signs all the time. If you have children, you realize children are very good at reading signs of their parents. They look at the parents, they say, okay, it's bright and shiny. Mom, can I have an ice cream? Sure. Great. Other time, look at that. Okay, the storm is rising. Let's just shut up and do our homework. They're good at reading signs. Some of us are not so good, but we still read signs. I think this person likes me. I think this person don't. If you're a doctor, you read signs of uh, medical signs, whether this person is well or not well. You know, in fact, the government teaches us to read signs. Dengue. If you breed, you bleed. So you watch out for breeding of mosquitoes. Or if terrorism is a danger, it's not if but when, so we watch out for dangers. We, we live by reading signs and we live by responding rightly to signs. This morning as we come to Matthew 16, it's a huge topic on signs and the identity of Jesus. In fact, you and me, as we come to Matthew 16, as we read and engage with it, we will inevitably be pulled in to the passage and we have to make a response to what we understand who Jesus is. Because if we ignore the sign, you and I will not be fine. And that's where it is heading. So if you have your Bible, I hope you have one, that you open to Matthew 16. Because the beginning is is one with an unusual sign that a great storm is ahead for the rest of the Gospel. So if you have it with me, um, look at chapter 16, verse 1. Now, even before you look at that, I just want to get you to imagine two pictures. Imagine a rat and a cat. So they're sharing a bowl of milk. It's, it's, a, it's an unusual picture. Or if you're an X-Men fan, you have uh, Professor X and Magneto having a game of chess or having dinner and having coffee. It, it's, a, it's a weird sign because they're nemesis. They're arch enemies of each other. And they hold different values, but they are sitting there enjoying something together. You know it's an unusual picture when that happens. So now look at verse 1 of chapter 16. This is how it begins. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and test him. If you're not familiar with the gospel, uh, let me bring it out to you that it's actually a very unusual 
picture. For you see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they are not friends. There'll be times they'll sit at the same seats of political parties called the Sanhedrins, but in and of themselves, they're never good friends because they hold different theology and truths. The Pharisees, they like to add on to the scriptures with, with traditions that we saw last week. The Sadducees, they'll reduce things and they'll hold on to just the five books of Moses. They don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe in afterlife. They don't believe in things that are not literally interpreted. Everything is just literal. So they are not good friends or great political allies. But today, as you come to Matthew 16, they are temporary allies. They are willing to compromise their differences. Perhaps they even had coffee together and have a discussion on how they are going to plan and trap Jesus. And that's how it begins. Because up to this point, if you're befooling us with the gospel, Jesus has become the number one religious threat to their religious and political stability. So they arrive, the group of them, and they look at Jesus and they say, we want you to show us a sign to prove who you are. That's how it begins. But it is an irony because Jesus has been doing miraculous signs after signs and they are meant to have point people to who he is. People are reforming their ideas of who he is as he is moving on. But not the Pharisees and Sadducees, they refuse to say what they think. In fact, as Jesus healed the sick and the weak, as he cast out demons that terrorized God's people, as he raised a little girl up from the dead, as he fed 5,000 men and family, and then 4,000 men and family, people are meant to see who he is. But here today, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they are here, they don't want to read it. They want Jesus to dance to their music to be put under their scrutiny. Jesus, do something to show us who you are. With that, Jesus respond, not with engaging in their demands, but with a condemnation. Look at the condemnation, verse 2. Jesus said, When evening comes, you say, There will be fine weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, today, you will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to read, interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of times. <laughs> you Pharisees, Sadducees, you're fine people with great expertise to read signs. You can't, you can't even read the signs of the skies and the weather. But how ironic, when it comes to theological, spiritual, uh, and, and things like that of scriptures, you, you can't seem to understand. Could you? You're meant to have the Bible or scriptures to interpret God's Messiah, but you, you could not recognize who I am? Perhaps you do not want to recognize who I am. And you are demanding signs. No, their lust for religious, political power, their desires to be their own God, has been so prominent in their hearts that they refuse to see who Jesus is and they are demanding Jesus to dance to their music and hear Jesus declare a judgment. A very sobering one. Look at verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And then Matthew put this frightening statement. Jesus then left them and went away. Well, friends, I just want to pause here. I want you to soak in that picture for a moment, that conversation, and to recognize even as Jesus says what he said, it has become a judgment on them. Because even as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they they revealed their rejection of Jesus. 
or all the proof that God has given, and they are asking for Jesus to dance to their music. In fact, in chapter 12, just a few chapters back, they are plotting to kill Jesus. As they are, they are blinded by God, by God's sign for them and rejecting Jesus, Jesus rejects them by turning away and walking away. Now, dear friends, I think there's a grave danger, even for us, in our time, to hear that when a person chooses to harden his or her heart from obvious signs that God has proven about Jesus, that they are in great danger. Perhaps you can hear a person saying this, uh, Andrew, I'm not really interested to know whether Jesus is biblically or historically true. What I want is that if God proves himself by showing me something, I'll believe in him. I don't even heard of that before. I don't really want to hear what the Bible is going to say, but if God shows himself, maybe I'll believe in him. But here, Matthew puts this account in because it is a dangerous thing for anyone to follow the footsteps of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the reason is this. Their problem was not a problem of a lack of evidence. Their problem was a hardened heart. The problem is not a lack of evidence, but a hardened heart. Well, as Jesus walked away in judgment, he gave them one chance. One chance. Verse 4, he gave them an escape route in a sense. That you will see one more sign. The sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? It's back earlier in chapter 12 that it was his death. And three days later, he raised to life. You have one more sign. But by the end of Matthew, if you will finish with us in this journey of Matthew, you'll find that when the last sign of this great sign of Jonah is revealed, they again turn their back on Jesus. Because it was not evidence that caused them not to believe. It was a hardened heart. Now as Jesus moves on, we read a sadly humorous account here. Because while the Pharisees and Sadducees, they would not interpret Jesus is the Messiah. The disciples of Jesus, they could not interpret the danger that's coming right at them. And so they start to think about the daily affairs as they go with Jesus. So look at verse 5 in this account. Now when they went across the lake, I assume they're on a boat and they're not swimming. As they went across the lake, the disciples forget to bring bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the east of the Pharisee and Sadducees. So this Next movement as they are on the boat, Jesus gave them a teaching and a warning about the, te- the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Because what is happening? The arch enemies have become friends. And they are against Jesus and it's not going to be good for you who are following me. There's a big warning there for them. And did they catch the message? Of course, they didn't. They say, oh dear, Jesus found out we didn't bring bread. So to reprimand us, he says, and you guys don't go and borrow bread from the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's like, oh gosh, it's so indirect, isn't it? But what's happening? The issue with the, with the disciples this time around was not a lack of understanding, again, but a lack of faith. And when they have a lack of faith in Jesus, they can't hear the danger that Jesus is warning them. Their lack of faith that Jesus provides for them, caused them to be blinded and deaf to hearing the warnings of Jesus. I don't know about you, have you found yourself in that situation before? 
I have. Perhaps the time where we lack of a lack of faith, we start brooding over physical needs or concerns, and then we start to miss out warning signs that Jesus tells us that we need to watch out for. Now here what's happening, Jesus is giving them a teaching point after the event, and says, You watch out for what they are doing. And their minds and their eyes are looking at food. And they could not see this. So in the same way as Christians, there will be times where we too can miss out important dangers that we should actually be concerned about. Let's put this to a test in your day-to-day life, in my day-to-day life. Do you start to look around seeing the dangers of enemies of the gospel? Does it come to our mind? The impending threats that God's people and church will have to face. Look at church history and we will not be an exception. To just live on and enjoy life. Church history tells us persecution comes all the time. Do we look around day-to-day life and miss out that there are dangers that we can fall into wrong companies, wrong teachings, wrong thinking, wrong trusting? Our Jesus starts to become the one that we look like rather than that of scriptures. That's the danger. And the disciples were there and we are not um, just listening that it's them and not us because we too can miss that danger because they, in their um, concerns and their lack of faith, they, they forgot that Jesus is the one who fed the 5,000, 4,000. Perhaps we are the ones in our concern of our daily life, we forget that He's the Creator who has been feeding creation from day one. And in our concerns of day-to-day affairs, we might not hear the warnings and dangers that comes towards those who say they are Christians. And we live as if it's not there. If that's the case, I think Jesus' words here is a great warning for the disciples and for you and for me that we are, be careful, we are to be careful to listen. We need to listen and keep trusting in what Jesus is saying rather than to take heed of how the world is bombarding us with information and teachings. Because what kind of teachings can come to us? It could be all kinds. What could come to you that would distract you? Maybe a teaching that says, uh, traditions are important. Well, the Pharisees does. You need to do this and that. And it's, you kept the routines of your Christian life. You are alright. Do the routines. Turn out on Sunday. You are going to be alright. Or at other times, doubts will come in and say, is resurrection going to be true? You look around the world and say, Will I really resurrect? Or perhaps we want to start thinking, perhaps we're the Messiah of our own lives. We say Jesus maybe, but we live as if our happiness is the goal in life. What are the messages around? Because this ease that comes in will start to spread and will end up becoming like Pharisees and Sadducees who will become undiscerning of Jesus for who he is and we start to live our lives the way we choose. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees are. They have the scriptures and that's the profession, but they are signs they could not see. The disciples, they hear and they witness everything, but their hearts and concerns of worldly affairs cause them not to hear. And there is danger there. So Jesus warns his disciples of the spiritual dangers, the oppositions that come to those who follow him. Now, as we move on, he, Jesus brought them up to the, ups, the, the outskirts of, of the Jewish nation, to Caesarea Philippi, and there he has this conversation with them. Because by now, except for the Pharisees and Sadducees, the rest of the Jewish world, they are 
in gossips, they are in making noise, they are having discussion. Hey, who is this Jesus? The discussion is going all around the world. Everyone is talking about Jesus and making their own decisions about who he is. Well, except the Pharisees and Sadducees, apparently. And here Jesus decides that the time is right. He's going to confront his inner circle to find out what they think about him. So imagine while Jesus having a meal with them, somehow they have bread now, having their meal, maybe some fish. And Jesus asked them this question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? So, such a you know, non-dangerous question. They're having a meal, Jesus asking a question. Yeah, yeah, some people say you're John the Baptist, have stories about that. Some people say you're Elijah, they have some stories about that. Some people say you're Jeremiah, and others say, yeah, one of the prophets. Mostly positive. They're having that conversation, or having a meal, there's nothing threatening. And then Jesus paused. Perhaps they have to pause as well, and then Jesus look at them and say, how about you? Who do you say I am? Now that's a whole different story. It's easy to talk about what this person says, that person says. But when it comes to you, who do you say I am? They have to make a response. And who was the first one to speak but Simon Peter? right? The man with the, the outspoken character. And he says, verse 16, listen to this. He says, you, you are the Messiah. Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. The Son of the living God. Can't just put it out there that when, they, um, when Peter says this, he's probably not eating his fish when he's saying this. Because it's a dangerous account. Not that he will choke. But because when you declare that Jesus is the Messiah, you are saying this because this is the Jewish understanding. The Messiah is the anointed King of God. And he added on, not just the Messiah, you are the Son of God. That makes that declaration and those sitting around Peter the rebels of the Roman Empire. When he said that, it was not the way that he just eat a fish and says he's saying something that will make them branded as criminals or um, enemies of the emperor himself. But perhaps more than just more than what Peter realized that when he made that declaration. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. He has said the fundamental words that from then on, anyone who wants to be a Christian would have to say. What he said become the foundation of Christianity and declaration that will link us to the Son of God and bring us into the kingdom of heaven. How about you and me? How will we declare Jesus? Perhaps let's pause a bit and imagine, transport ourselves, we are not born here or wherever we were, and we end up in a country where there's already a king. There's already a religion. What would you and I say if someone were to ask, who do you think Jesus is? How will we reply? If any case, like Peter, it is a costly declaration to have called Jesus Messiah and Son of God is a costly declaration. And in response to that costly declaration, Jesus gave these amazing words. Look at verse 17. He said this to Simon Peter. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for it was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by Father in heaven. In this rare occasion, Jesus calls Simon by his full name. Simon, son of Jonah, he says, Simon, son of Jonah, blessed are you, 
But you didn't hear this from other sons, other men of this earth. You hear this from my Father in heaven. You didn't hear this from your Father. You hear this from my Father. And in my Father that you declare what is true and who I am. That I am the Messiah and I am the Son of the living God. In that, Jesus is saying this thing that it is a gift to you, Peter, that you are able to declare this. Without that, you would not have. And then Jesus makes this historically and spiritually crucial statement of verse 18 and 19. If your Bible, keep it open. And I'll spend a few minutes looking at this because this has turned history upside down uh, in its literal sense. So let me read this to you and we'll engage in this for a couple of minutes before we'll come back to the, the journey and the narrative. Let me read verse 18, 19 to you. Jesus said this, And I tell you that you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys, give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now I want to put it out that volumes of books have been written about this. Tears have been shed, blood has been shed, ink has been spilled to talk about these two verses. And we want to look at this together. We will not be able to look at it in details, but I want to point out to you some of the things that are there. One of the big arguments for verse 18 and 19 is the Roman Catholics. They view that Peter is the rock, so he is the first pope. He's given the seat, um, and each generation will be handed down to the next pope, and they have a special place. That's the Roman Catholic. Meanwhile, the Eastern Orthodox or the Protestant or the rest who are not who are Christians but they don't they're not Roman Catholic. This is the general view that has been going on for centuries that they view that this rock it's not Jesus it's not Peter, it is Peter's confession. But still others in recent time will understand that perhaps the rock is Jesus himself, because that's been used by God, that's been used by Jesus. Or perhaps Peter is the rock, but the first rock of the many rocks to come to build a church. So I'm, I'm bringing out to you what, what are some of the things that have happening. But let me point out to you what it is not saying and what it is saying. Uh, and engage with me for just a few minutes and flex your brain muscle. First of all, I don't think verse 17 to 18 is written, or at least Matthew's intention, for it to show us the Catholic's view that Peter has a special office above the apostles, even above the rest. It cannot be because Peter himself is a fallible person. In Galatians, Paul says that he had to rebuke Peter for he was clearly wrong. Later on, if you read in Acts, the, the pillar of the Jerusalem church, it didn't mention that it was Peter, it was James. And later on, if you read your whole New Testament, the theology of papacy, meaning the Pope, was never brought out by Peter or anyone else. So that is probably not what Matthew is bringing out. But rather, from a Eastern Orthodox or Protestant view, comes verse 17 and 18. There are three views. I'm going to put it up there. All three views for you to take a look. Um, yeah, I think it's just now that slide. Okay, these are the three views. I'll just mention it briefly. And I want to bring to you, at the end of reading this, whichever you hold, all three have consistent things that we need to accept. 
Okay, let me just bring out these three again. And the focus is actually what do they have that are consistent. Okay, so the first view is the rock is the confession of Peter. So Jesus used to build his church. Number two, the rock is Peter, but not as an office in the church, but as the first Christian, the first rock that builds up Christ's church. Or number three, the rock is Jesus himself. That's been used as a description. But whichever tree you hold, here are the consistent things that they hold. I'll show you the next slide. At least three things there, and you can find in today's passage. First of all, when Peter boldly declared Jesus as the Messiah, it was only because, not by him, but God gave him the ability to. Okay, It's God's ability for him. Number two, whoever wants to put trust in Jesus, they don't just go to Peter and get it. They have to make the same confession as Jesus. Those who are Christians are built on the same confession. And number three, the Bible never tells us that there's a mediator between us and Jesus because salvation comes only through Jesus in confessing Him as Lord. So I think at least these three things is what we need to hold on to when Jesus spoke to Peter on that. So with understanding verse 17 and 18, Jesus now goes on to tell us verse 19. He says this. Okay, That's the context. So verse 19, He says this to Peter. That He is given the keys to bind or lose people from the kingdom of heaven. In fact, if you read on Matthew, Peter is not the only one who is given the keys. By Matthew 18, 18, Jesus now speaks to the rest of the disciples. He says this, Truly I tell you, the you is a plural, English doesn't show you that, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So the keys to the kingdom of heaven, in a sense, was given to Peter, and also to all the disciples who profess the same profession as Jesus. Because the key to enter the kingdom of heaven is the profession and acknowledgement that Jesus is the Messiah, the King, and He is the Son of God. So friends, as we sit here, all of us, some of us have done this many times, some of us have never, who do you and I say Jesus is? What will you say if someone to ask you this? In the words of Peter, we must proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, because that is the key to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, put it clear here that it's not by mouthing it out that we bounce from earth to heaven. The moment you chant it out a hundred times, you get bounced. It is not. But that confession is a revelation of who you really think Jesus is in your heart. These are the words that the Pharisees and the Sadducees would not say. So now after Peter has made this monumental declaration, can you imagine, and Jesus says this to him, he gets really excited. He says, alright, now we got it, you are the Messiah, we are your right hand man, left hand man, the twelve band of brothers, what's the strategy? <laughs> if you're a Jew, you'll be thinking, okay, now how do we get rid of the Romans? How do we get in and establish the kingdom of David once more? And Jesus revealed his strategy that is totally unexpected, at least in their distracted mind. Look at what strategy Jesus has. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. In other words, the sign of 
Jonah. Well, Jesus' strategy did not sit well with Peter. So what did Peter do? He says, well, since I'm the right-hand man, perhaps the prime minister to be, why don't I give Jesus some word of wisdom? Surely they will listen to a good old Peter. So Peter gave these words to Jesus. Look at what he says. Verse 22. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never be. Jesus turned and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, what do you make of it as you hear this, or if you can even imagine that scene? If you have taken the Roman Catholic view of verse 18, Peter is entrusted with a special office, then 23 suggests that we are all in trouble. Because Jesus now turns and calls him Satan. So what makes Peter for a moment a blessed man? And the next point, being um, called Satan. It lies in his words, isn't it? It lies in what he says. When he said that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, he became literally the first professing Christian. But when he said, Jesus, you shall never die, he became the obstruction of the Messiah's mission. Peter's earlier profession came from the heavenly father. This second profession came from his earthly concerns. But let's put it straight there. In Jesus' teachings, human concerns is never the path of the Messiah. Human concerns is never the path of the Messiah. And he will say, neither will be yours if you are to follow me. And so after revealing what he must do, Jesus now turns to his disciples and begins to explain to them what will happen to them and what must they do if they want to follow him. God's version of the Messiah. So look at verse 24 to 27, the last few verses of this chapter. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves take up their cross and follow me. Deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me. What has Jesus seen so far? What have we seen so far? We have seen the Pharisees and Sadducees. They refuse to accept Jesus as the Messiah. We have seen the disciples, they are following him, but they are very distracted by worldly concerns. And Jesus says, now you need to look your eyes to the right place if you are to follow me and follow me rightly. So this is how it is for us. The way to follow Jesus is not by self-affirmation. It's not by hardening of our heart. It's not by self-glorification because this is the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. To glorify yourself up. Rather, the way to follow Jesus is self-denying. It is cross-bearing. It is Christ-seeking because that is the way of the Messiah. The path of worldliness if we look around, our version of Pharisees and Sadducees is to affirm ourselves, to seek our own interests, our own personal happiness, because that is the goal of life. But Jesus instructs them that whoever wants to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. It's the opposite of the world's you know, mantra. As we think about this, I, I want to pause here. I want to invite you to think a little bit about your life so far and my life. 
Are there things in our life that we cling on to so much that it actually prevents us from following Jesus, at least God's version of Jesus? Are there things that you are clinging on and I'm clinging on to that is actually stopping us from following God's version of Jesus, of Messiah? Perhaps it's control of our lives, our time, our career, relationship, our possessions. Perhaps it's our own um, pride, the praise and acknowledgement we prefer, such that we find it hard to announce that we are Christians or to say that we are. What is it that is stopping you and me or might prevent you and me from following the Messiah? Jesus said we must deny ourselves, but what does denying ourselves mean? Perhaps denying ourselves may mean this, that to say to ourselves, what can I, how can I be gainfully deployed for God's glory? Let me say that again. How can I be gainfully deployed for God's glory? Wherever I am, how can I be gainfully deployed to be used for God's glory? That we ask ourselves this question rather than, how can I have more glory and comfort. Because verse 20, 23 tells us, one is with the heavenly concerns in mind as we are asking and talking to ourselves. The other is of earthly concern that we are talking to each other. We want to engage ourselves and ask, are we denying ourselves? Perhaps ask this question. Do we ask ourselves, how can I be gainfully deployed or used for God's glory? Rather than, how can I have more comfort and more glory for myself? What we speak to ourselves reveals what our concerns are. For only if we are willing to deny ourselves, says the Lord, that we can hear the next instruction, which is to take up our cross. Now we have heard Peter, uh, Paul says this in the responsive reading we have read together. That's the Messiah we have, that he who is very nature God, he did not consider equality with God to be used for his advantage, but rather he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself to be obedient to death, even death on the cross. He took up his cross and that was his path. And so for us as Christians, if we are to follow Jesus, he's no longer carrying a sword like Peter with his daggers and conquering a piece of land in this world. But Jesus says to pick up the cross, to identify with Jesus and follow him, the path that he takes. Now, taking the cross is a total change of worldview. Let me put it this way. Taking out the cross doesn't mean, let's say Easter is coming for a few days, you decide, okay, I'm going to let go of some of my pleasures to show that I really mean it, and after Easter I'll enjoy it back. No, in Jesus' time, when you take out the cross, you don't get a tea break. When you take out the cross, you don't even get to sit down. Because the moment you take out the cross, the only time you let it go is where you're going to be hung. Jesus says, when you take out the cross, he didn't mean let's take it out for a few days of the week. Let's give up a little bit here. Let's have a tea over here and then. Just a mix of both. Taking out the cross literally means finishing up with him. So that means that a person who takes up the cross of Christ has no passion for indulging himself and herself for the world's way of glorifying ourselves. But rather, it is to follow Christ for where he wants us to head. It's not a path 
of glory in this world is a path of following Him. What is the cross, if I pause here, that you and I may have to take up in your state of life at this moment, in my stage of life at this moment? We all live different lives, in some sense, similar but different. What is the cross and how does it look like in your life, in my life? If you're a student, your worker, your homemaker, could it be to be identified as a Christian in school with your friends, your colleagues, your home, your friends, family, that they hear you say that you're a Christian rather than laugh when they joke about Christian stuff? Could it be to give up comfort and time so that we identify with Christians who need help to carry their cross and when we are doing that, we are actually carrying our own cross, taking the same journey as they are. Or perhaps one day when we have to face here, denying Christ or face rejection, what will we do? I think it's a good time to start thinking now because any of these circumstances can come unless we ignore church history and the way church has always been. That these things might just not happen in my time because it always comes to those who declare Christ loud enough. Jesus says, deny ourselves, take out our cross, and lastly, follow me. There's this great theologian by the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you've heard his name. He's an important guy in the time of the Nazis. He says this about Jesus. Let me quote him for you. He says this, When Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids him or her to come and die. Let me just quote him one time. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The same for a woman. The point is this for Bonhoeffer in his time. He's saying Christianity is not a romantic notion. It's not saying that um, if we follow Jesus, things will be better. If we sacrifice a job, he'll give me a better job. If we give him money, he'll give me better. If I sacrifice this relationship, God will honor me and give me a prince charming or a beautiful princess. It may not happen. You may just lose it. Because Bonhoeffer's point is, there's no romantic notion in following Jesus. When you say, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. It's not a romantic notion that some would suggest, but it's a raw confrontation of our sinful, fleshly preference and Jesus' command to follow him to heaven. It's a raw confrontation of worldly concerns or striving to hold on to heavenly concerns. It's not an easy thing, but it is something the Lord has given us. And here is the reality of life in the words of Jesus as he continues verse 25. Look at it. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. Can you just imagine with me life like water? Just for a moment. Life is like water. The moment you try to grab it, the water splash out. So, Jesus' point here is, if we try to grab life the way we want, that we want to expense all that we have for our own pleasure, because personal satisfaction and joy and happiness is the goal in life, you try to grab it, your whole life gets splashed off. You lose it. Jesus says, you lose it. But the opposite is a great promise. But if you grab hold of me and what Peter has professed, Grab hold of that. Even if you lose your life, you get everything. Because why? Because I am life. 
Because Jesus is the giver of life. And what he says counts. To put it another way, he says in verse 26, what good it will be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You know, what's the, what's the thing that the richest man can have? They can buy anything in this world. Is that true? Almost true. But they can't buy the thing when they lose. That is their soul. What can you pay? What can you pay? What can I pay to earn a soul if we lose it? There's nothing. There's nothing we can pay to get it. So here's the question for us. What's the price that you and I will pay for our soul? Think for a moment your soul. You only have one. I have only one. What is the price that you put on it? The Pharisees and Sadducees, this is the price tag. Their price tag is for their own glory, their comfort, their own life, their own security, what they have. That's their price tag when they say, we'll reject Jesus, get rid of him. When they say that about Jesus, they have already named the price tag of their soul. And they get it. They get what they paid for. Is it worth it? It is not. So what will we do? What is the price that you and I have? Think about those questions. What will stop us from following Jesus? And now ask the question, what's the price that you will put on your life and my life? Or will we, will we like Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You know, to this world, there's actually no such thing as um, overzealous and underzealous Christians. Christians are Christians. To the world that looks at Christians and says, ah, they're overzealous, what a waste of life. Jesus gives a totally different interpretation of that. If you're a Christian, they deny yourself, follow, pick up your cross and follow him. Jesus says this. Look at verse 27. An amazing words from Jesus himself. He says, The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory and his angels, and he will reward each person according to what they have done. Meaning according to what their life and the price tag they have paid for their soul. When Jesus returns in full glory, those who give their lives to Him will be rewarded with eternal life, eternal rewards. That is the price tag for those who will cling to what Peter professed, even if it costs everything. If that is what you hold on to, let me tell you, your price tag is eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. That's the words of Jesus. So as we close this great section, we begin with signs. Jesus is going to end with one sign that you'll speak about, that some of them will witness. Let me read that last verse, explain it, and then we'll close. Verse 28. Some will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Some people that Jesus is talking to right now, in that context, will catch a glimpse of the Son of Man coming in heaven. We'll see a few glimpses, but one key one is the sign of Jonah when he dies and three days later, he resurrected. That is a sign, the vindication of what Jesus has been saying, that the Son of God, the Son of Man, has come. There are other glimpses around. Just next chapter, if you are here next week, they saw the transfiguration. The three of them, they already see Jesus in His glory, a glimpse of that. Those that continue to live on in Acts, they saw that church has begun. And those who survived a bit more, a few years longer, at AD 70, they saw the, the Old Testament has closed. The literal temple of God, the sacrificial system, is closed once and for all. And those who are looking at that will be disheartened. 
But those who are looking at Jesus and look at the church and say, it has begun. The Son of Man and His kingdom has begun. Those who look to the temple and to their own ways, they will be destroyed and they will wonder, where will we ever have the place to worship God? Those who have looked to the kingdom of heaven, who have looked at the Son of God, they saw that this is how the church begins and Christ will come back for His kingdom. Dear friends, as we close this time, perhaps it's good to us that God has shown us the signs. But will we see the signs? Will we respond rightly to it? And will we hold on to be a follower of Jesus? Because those who hold on to it, Jesus says, I will hold on to you. Let's close this time in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you They've shown us so much about Jesus, biblically, historically. Help us that we can see and acknowledge Jesus for who He is. Help us to recognize that there are dangers around so that we will be careful not to be distracted in this world and miss the dangers that surround those who claim Jesus as Messiah. And Father, help us in the times that we are so easily distracted to look up to heavily concerns rather than worldly concerns and lose faith in Christ. Help us to be willing to deny ourselves, to carry the cross and to follow Jesus all the way into the kingdom of heaven. Because we know that if we give our life for his sake, we shall never lose it again in eternity. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, Visit us online at busypc.sg.